What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. This is the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Imagine that now. A Catholic network with a program for non-Catholics. That is the whole reason we do this program, is to answer questions from non-Catholics who just uh, have this one little thing that is stopping them from becoming a Catholic, or maybe they just want to learn more about the Catholic faith. In any event, we are here to help, and here's our phone number, 833 833- 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code 1 and then 205-271-2985. If you're watching us on TV, you can participate as well. Our email address, ctc at EWTN.com, ctc at EWTN.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Jeff Burson handles social media for us. We are also streaming right now on YouTube and Facebook. So if you've got a question, put that question in the comments box. Jeff will see it. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio, and uh, off we go. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, sir? I'm doing decent. Thank you. Interesting question here from Bertha. Bertha says, why do certain religions dismiss the importance of Mary and don't want to pray to her? Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate the question. So in the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, um, a big part of the Protestant Reformation was the rejection wholesale of huge areas of Catholic devotional life, practice, sacramental theology, in favor of what Protestants would consider to be a kind of streamed-down emphasis on the person of Jesus alone. And they, they understood all of these accoutrements of Catholic life as being more distractions from the main point, uh, which they undertook, they understood to be Jesus. So Christ alone was one of their uh, one of their rallying cries. Now, from the Catholic point of view, uh, it is at the end of the day all about Jesus, uh, to be sure. sure. So the focus upon Christ as the means of salvation and our Lord and Savior and all of that is is entirely appropriate. What the Protestant misses, however, is that Christ reaches us through means, through instruments, and through people. Saint Paul said. We are Christ's co-laborers, as if God were making his appeal through us. And the danger in the Protestant view, in my opinion, is that it, it puts the believer at risk of imagining that his relationship with God is somehow a private affair that does not concern other people. Uh, the very young Martin Luther once wrote, and this is atrocious in my, in my view, he said, if anyone wants to be saved, he should pretend that he is the only person that exists in the world, right? Like an, an utterly solipsistic, introverted, uh, you know, looking inward and, and not to the, the people around him view of what salvation means. Mm. And uh, uh, I can remember actually once years ago when I was still a Protestant, being in a Protestant worship service and the, the worship leader or the pastor exhorting the congregation in song to imagine that no one else was there, that it was just them and Jesus. 
And whatever that attitude we might say about it, one thing I can tell you for sure, it's not a biblical attitude, and it's not the attitude that Christ enjoins upon us, that we're saved in and through and by the means of a community. St. Augustine once said the reason that God gave us the church was so that we could have people to do good to. And uh, St. James, of course, exhorts us to pray for one another, to carry one another's burdens to the Lord in prayer. So salvation means being reconciled to God in a way that makes us charitable towards our neighbors. And it's kind of necessary that you have neighbors to be charitable towards. And one of the primary ways we exhibit that charity, that we live that charity as members of the body of Christ, is through prayer. We pray for one another. And the great blessing of being a Catholic is that 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 life of mutual prayer and intercession doesn't end with physical death. The members of the church that pray for us uh, continue to exist in the glories of heaven. And those that have made it, if you will, uh, the saints who are perfected in virtue and charity have particularly efficacious prayers. So in asking the saints, like Mary, for mm-hmm. their prayers, we're not denigrating the mediation of Christ. We're celebrating the very thing that Christ's mediation came to establish, namely our unity as the body of Christ. Bertha, thank you so much for your call. Here's an anonymous email. My wife, who is Lutheran, and I were watching a Catholic podcast discussing last rites. She has a problem with a person who is in a comatose comatose state needing last rites, and then if they don't come out of that coma, receiving them again. Why would they need multiple rites if they haven't had any opportunity to know they received them and would not be able to sin since the last rites were given? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, you know, I think you could make the argument, to be sure, that if someone has lapsed into unconsciousness and they've received last rites, it would not be pastorally irresponsible, uh, you know, not to grant them again, all right? Um, But you're not hurting anything. Right. You're not hurting anything. And the, the position of the church is that you don't have to be conscious, in order for the anointing of the sick to have a spiritual effect in your life. You do have to have the proper disposition, and unconscious people have a disposition. They, they lost consciousness oriented a certain way towards yeah. God. They were either receptive to the possibility of the sacrament or not, and that will have an effect on its efficacy. You know, a hardened, angry sinner who wants no reconciliation with God will not be blessed by the sacrament of anointing. That's not going to save him. Um, but as long as he has that disposition, even if he lapses into unconsciousness, uh, the penitent sinner, the believing faithful Catholic, can can benefit from the grace of the sacrament. Because as we were just said in the previous call, our salvation doesn't happen alone. We're saved in and through a community, which is the church. And so the prayers of the church on our behalf. You know, I, I one time I was struggling in my own prayer life, and I confessed to a priest. You know, I'm, who's a friend of mine. I'm I'm really having a hard time praying about such and such. He says, "Don't you worry." I'll pray for you. See, that, uh, what, what a Catholic thing to say. Yeah. What a Catholic thing to say. The, the, the recognition that the Church is there to accompany us even when we can't do for ourselves. How beautiful is that? Absolutely. Thanks so much for your anonymous email. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, here's the address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Well, we're looking forward to your phone calls coming in this afternoon here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Our phone number, 833-288-3986. Calls coming in right now, 833-288-EWTN. It is called a communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Do stay with us.
called A Communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. Glad you're with us today. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Arthur in Everett, Washington, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio, one of our longtime radio partners. And uh, Arthur, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, yes, thanks for taking my call. Uh, Somebody called in about a week ago and was having difficulty with the uh, perpetual virginity of Mary. And I'm a convert, and that was a um, stumbling block for me. And so uh, what convinced me was the fact that we see Mary as the new Ark of the Covenant. And we know that um, the old Ark of the Covenant was so sacred that the one person that touched it when it was being transported back to Jerusalem fell dead. And so when you look at the parallels between in Scripture between the Ark of the Covenant and Mary, I don't think there was any way that Joseph would touch her in that way based on the fact that, um, you know, she is the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the comment. I remember when I was coming into the Catholic Church and I had, you know, the, the, the image of Mary as the Ark is a liturgical and devotional and biblical image, but it's not one that's elaborated in Catholic dogma. Like, we don't have a dogma that says, and Mary is the Ark of the Covenant. And so, as I was learning my catechism, I, I, didn't, I didn't encounter that idea. Mm. I think I first encountered that idea when I was reading Scott Hahn's book, Hail Holy Queen, and he, uh, in that text, draws out all the parallelisms between Luke's narrative and the narratives in uh, in. Uh, in First and Second Samuel about the Ark of the Covenant, and I was blown away, just like you. I thought, I've never seen this before. This is kind of amazing stuff. And there, there do seem to be some very strong literary parallels uh, that suggest that Luke sees the Ark of the Covenant as a typology of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and it just go. And of course, Revelation, where she is uh, uh, the woman clothed in the sun, with the moon and stars under her feet. Uh, comes uh, on the scene immediately after a vision of the ark. So they're juxtaposed in sacred scripture. So it does seem to be pretty compelling evidence. And it underscores that Mary is not just, you know, another gal from from, from Bethlehem or no. Nazareth. She's an incredibly <laughs> special person in mm. the scope of redemption. Yes, indeed. Arthur, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN if you have a question for Dr. David Anders. 833-288-3986. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to a quick uh, email from John. And as a musician, David, you may have, you may have an answer for this one. Does the message of the song Amazing Grace align with Catholic teachings? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, Amazing Grace has a lot of verses. Yes. I don't have all of them memorized, so I don't want to give an uncritical pass to Amazing Grace. I'd have to go back and look at all the verses, not the one we always sing, the first verse, the most familiar, before I said, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head that is uh, particularly problematic. Now, you know, there's a larger context around the hymn that is often taken uh, within a very Protestant, understanding of the nature of salvation. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, that uh, it's a Protestant hymn from a Protestant context, but, you know, Protestant hymns can be adapted for Catholic use, and I, I'm not, on the face of it, aware of any blatant contradiction. But again, like I said, I have to go down and scrutinize every every verse of the hymn in depth before I gave my 
I mean, it's not up to me to give an imprimatur, you know, but before I gave my, as it were, imprimatur. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe my wife is listening, who is a church musician, music director at our parish, and uh, she's said on, on occasion that there's one or two things that she wasn't sure about. Maybe she's tuning in. Uh, maybe she can give us a little information on that. Here is Tom now in Twinsburg, Ohio, listening on AM 1260, The Rock. Hey there, Tom. What's on your mind today, sir? Yes, um, you stated something like, if you die with charity for others in your heart, you go to um, heaven, if I understand you right. Take um, a sexually active gay person who helps everybody else around him as much as he can out of concern for other people, and then dies. Does he go to heaven, or does he go to hell for sodomy? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question quite a lot. So... Let me make a couple of distinctions. The first one is that I, I really don't ever want to get on the air and tell you this soul is going to heaven, this soul is going to hell. I, it, the judgment of souls really does not belong to me in a big way. It yeah. belongs to God. Okay, So I'm really never going to pronounce on who's going to go to heaven and who's going to hell. I don't care what I know about their lifestyle. I'm just, I'm just not going to go there, right? What the church tells us is there are certain things that are objectively wrong. And some of them are gravely wrong, and we should stay away from them. And so I will present the church's teaching on the moral life. Do this, don't do that. Uh -huh. Live this way, don't live that way. Mm. Um, I also recognize that the church sees some distinctions in our personal culpability. A person can be involved in a gravely immoral act but they can be there under compulsion, not acting with the freedom of their will. They might not be in their right mind. Okay. Um, they may be acting in invincible ignorance, meaning that they, they have been habitually, perpetually, wrongly taught about the nature of the moral life, and it hasn't, there hasn't been an opportunity for them to be disabused of their wrong notions, and they're not responsible for their ignorance. doesn't mean that their actions are harmless, but the, it definitely lessens the culpability. And so since there are some uh, judgments about culpability that, co that come into play when evaluating mortal sin, that's where the judgment of God falls, and that's where I can't go. I can't know those things about a specific individual. Um, I, I do want to say um, a couple things about the nature of charity also. The presumption here is that my sexual life is one thing, and then there's this thing called charity over here that is disconnected from the question of my sexuality. That's not a Catholic way of thinking about charity. If charity is restricted to mean just a kind of, uh, well, you, a char if you're genuinely charitable according to the Church's teaching, you want the integral good of other people. Sure. Right? You want their integral good. You you you. you, you you don't just want to feed and clothe them, which, of course, is kind of a sine qua non. That's sort of the ground zero for charity. Yeah. You've got to want that. You don't just want them to be subjectively happy. You, you want them to flourish in the totality, the integral totality of their humanity, in, in their reason, mm. in their affectivity, in their emotional life, in their sexual life, in every aspect of the human person. You want that individual to attain the true ends for which they were made and to find joy and flourishing therein. And so I can't abstract the question of, you know, I can, I, can, I can be benevolent towards a soul who's suffering and maybe deprived of food or clothing, and I can meet that need. But I can't do that without also wanting them to have, say, integrity in their sexual life. 
Now, uh, in, in terms of practical ministry, that doesn't mean I'm going out and preaching sexual morality to every homeless person. That's absurd, right? You, you meet people where they are. You meet the needs you can meet. You, you pastorally, you approach them with, uh, with, with gradualness. Mm. You know, you don't get the whole package done at once. But a genuinely charitable attitude towards another soul means I want their integral good, body, soul, spirit, emotions, intellect, reason, will, all of it, to be healed and, 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 and developed. And if I abstract some aspect of their person away and only meet one set of material needs and ignore the others, then that's not the kind of charity that I'm looking for. And, and charity, the, the love for God, the love for God that requires our, that is necessary for our salvation, is a desire to seek the integral good, true, and beautiful in all things, including in my own nature, which would include my own sexual integrity. Mm. Like, I'm not really loving myself for God's sake if I'm not wanting the integral good of my own person. Right, so I, I don't think I can abstract, I don't think I can bifurcate human morality in the way that you suggest, that I could be charitable but, right? If there are too many buts on there, then it's not really what the Church understands as charity, which is a, which is a virtue that really informs the totality of life in all of its aspects. Uh, but as far as passing judgment goes, uh, you know, Jesus is pretty clear, don't judge. I'm not going to judge individuals, but I will talk about objective moral acts, and the Church teaches that sexuality is given for the procreation of children within the context of the marriage of a man and a woman who mm. pledged themselves in fidelity to one another for life, for better or for worse, sickness or poor, rich or poor, till death do them part. And so that's that's the message that we teach. That's the message we, spri- uh, we, uh, we uh, strive to live by. Tom, thanks so much for your call. It's called to Communion here on EWTN. This is a great time to call 833 833- 288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, or maybe you'd like to explain to us uh, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic, 833-288-3986. This next question, David, takes me back to the 1960s. Braden in Louisiana called and said, should I refuse people when they offer to send me good vibrations or good vibes, since what they are sending, if real, would not be from God? Yeah, I appreciate the question. So, yes, fairly ambiguous, fairly ambiguous, you know. Um, of course, I have the Beach Boys running through my head right Me now. Me too. You know, <laughs> um, There are many times in my daily interchange with people when, you know, someone might say casually, like, I'm, I'm, I'm beaming goodwill at you. Or, yeah. you know, and, and they really just mean it as a gesture of goodwill. Yeah, they, they may, not, they may they not be do. a prayerful person, and not, they're not going to bring themselves to say I'm praying for you, but sure. they really mean, I, I, you know, I just wish good for you. I'm, I'm not going to shoot that down, you know, no. if somebody says that kind of thing to me. And for that matter, if someone offered to pray to me and they weren't a Christian, they had some other religious tradition, I, look, I'm, I'm grateful for the— for, them extending benevolence toward me, and I'm going to accept that. Now, if they had a really articulate conception of what sending good vibes meant, and it involved some sort of gross act of idolatry or immorality, and they were somehow trying to make me complicit in that, well, that's different. But uh, this kind of, I mean, you know, your average beach boy isn't that sophisticated. <laughs> We'll uh, jump into our little deuce coop and uh, move on down the road here. Very good. Uh, Braden, thanks so much uh, for your call from Louisiana. Call to communion here on EWTN. Here's an email now from Nick. Does the Catholic Church have a position on soul ties? As in, do they exist? And are they applicable to individuals participating in fornication? Okay, I think... 
What we're talking about is the idea that two people might be somehow cosmic, cosmically linked in some kind of romantic uh, uh, pairing you know, written in the stars. Is that what you would I understand guess. that? Yeah, you know, like this I think is my, so. This individual is my soulmate, and we're tied together in some kind of cosmic way, and uh-huh. that somehow legitimates um, our sexual activity in a way that wouldn't be legitimated otherwise. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I definitely... Um, there, there is no such teaching in the Catholic Church, and it is not—it's not, it's not uh, affectivity or or compatibility or uh, or affection. No, none of those things legitimate sexual activity. Okay, right? None of them do. Um, a man could have all of that with his lover, and none of that with his wife, and it wouldn't legitimate having the paramour. Right? The the the. This is a this is a gross misunderstanding of the nature of marriage, and it really started uh, to a certain extent with the Puritans, but got really rolling in the Romantic period. This the idea that the purpose of marriage or marital coupling is to somehow deepen or extend uh, romantic attraction, and that's just false. And and uh, you know there's a there's a very interesting book by a secular historian, no fan of Catholicism. I'll add that. Um, I think her name is Stephanie Kuntz, if memory serves me correct. It's called Marriage a History. And uh, she really meant it to be a kind of attack on a traditional doctrine of marriage. But after I read it, I drew a different conclusion. Her point was that throughout the vast majority of the human race, what marriage has meant always everywhere and to everyone was something very different than what, say, modern America in the 20th century meant by marriage. Mm. And I, I agree with that statement, that for almost Everywhere out in human history, whether you're Christian or not, marriage has always been understood as a, basically an economic and social institution for the purpose of creating progeny and, and linking them through kinship ties to a community, legitimating them within a particular social and family structure. And, and of course, that can happen without there being any particular kind of affectivity between the parents, right? Yeah. And—, uh, and the Catholic Church thinks, well, you should love your wife, you should love your husband, but, you know, the, the, what if you stop feeling a certain way? Well, it doesn't remove your moral obligation to this this new community that you've created called the family. Yeah. You still have children. You still have this spouse. I mean, I've, I've known of guys that say, I'm going to divorce my wife because I don't love her anymore. And the proper response to that is, well, let's get busy and start loving her. Exactly. Yeah, you know, that, that doesn't justify your abandoning your mm. vocation. Yeah, Nick, thanks so much uh, for your email. Call to communion here on EWTN. Uh, Jeff just uh, contacted us and says, I've been going back and forth between a set of a contest church and a Novus Ordo church. Well, the Novus Ordo church is now saying I can't come to Sunday Mass because of my bipolar, PTSD, autism, etc., are all Novus Ordo churches like this? Okay, thank you very much. I really appreciate the question. So, first of all, let me just draw a distinction here. Mm. I don't want to characterize all Novus Ordo churches. I want to talk about all Catholic churches. Okay. Right? Um, the Catholic Church in the Latin Rite has an ordinary form of the Mass, all right? But what makes it Catholic is its union with the Pope, right? And and there are exceptions. There are also Latin masses in the Catholic, in the in the Latin Rite, yeah. also in union with the Pope. So yeah. the, the Rite itself doesn't characterize, say, the personality of the priest. That's a different issue. Um, and are all Catholic parishes the same? <laughs> By no means. <laughs> I mean, they should be the same in that they are united to their bishops and to the Pope, and they have the same catechism. 
But, you know, the way any particular priest administers his parish is very idiosyncratic to that priest. Um, It is bizarre to me that any Catholic Church would tell you that you can't come to Mass because of a psychiatric diagnosis unless you have habitually made a nuisance of yourself during the liturgy. Like if because of a psychiatric condition you have outbursts and carry on and draw attention to yourself, I could see a pastor saying, we got to do something about this. But just because someone's suffering, it's no reason to kick them out of Mass. Jeff, thanks so much for your question. In a moment, back to the phones here, and we'll be glad to take your call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. Stay with us. Very glad to have you with us today on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. We do have a couple of lines open. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Or if you're watching us on TV today, shoot us an email, ctc at ewtn.com. All right, here now, Adrian in San Jose, listening on YouTube. Adrian, what's on your mind today, sir? How are you guys doing? Thank you very much for everything, as always. Thank you. Um, my my question is, um, uh, see, so I'm left-handed, and I'm an artist, and I've always been kind of, you know, curious to wondering why left-handed people are there, so few of them, yada, yada, yada. But recently, I've, I've read that in the book of Judges, specifically in chapter 20, it speaks of a warrior's uh, says. 700 left-handed warriors that can hit a hair uh, off, right off of your head kind of thing. And I'm wondering, what does the Church teach about these um, 700 uh, war- left-handed warriors? And what do they talk about? What, what is it? I'm, I'm sorry. What does the Church teach about left-handed people in general? Because I know there's a lot of correlation to the devil being left-handed, so on and so forth. So anything you have on that would be great. Yeah, sure. Thanks. I really appreciate it. So first of all, the devil's not left-handed because the devil doesn't have hands. (laughs) The devil is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. So and he doesn't have a left or right. You can't you can't locate an immaterial being spatially that way. Nothing is to the left of Satan, and nothing is to the right of Satan. Yeah. Um, So you don't have to worry about that. Uh, The church has absolutely no teaching on the question of handedness. Uh, this is a natural biological phenomenon. Uh, you know, it, there's probably some, this is me talking, not the church, some yeah. genetic component involved, obviously. Um, and it has it has zero moral or spiritual significance. So there are a couple of places in the Old Testament where left-handed people are, are mentioned, n- not because there's any special spiritual significance to their left-handedness, but there was something about their left-handedness that came out in the narrative. So when I was in the Protestant seminary before I became Catholic, uh, everybody had to pass a, a uh, an exam on uh, Old and New Testament Bible content knowledge. You just had to know the content of the Bible pretty darn well. Okay. And, uh, you know, you'd make your flashcards and add them all up. And one of the questions that we always used to joke each other about was, who was the left-handed judge? <laughs> and there was a judge named Ehud who, had lef- who was left-handed, and that, that was significant in the story for one reason. He was able to conceal a knife on his right thigh and, uh, and assassinate a Canaanite king with his left hand because the king wow. wasn't expecting 
you know, a blade in the left hand. Wow. And uh, it's a very fat king, too. And so Ehud <laughs> slides the blade in, and it disappears in the rolls of fat. Ooh. You know, it's a very gruesome image. Yeah. So, you know, you, I'll never forget Ehud, the left-handed judge. Um, in terms of the 700 left-handed men that could sling a stone at a hair and not miss, my, my, this is a guess. This is, n- this is no kind of authoritative Catholic answer. This is a guess. I am guessing that this was a skill that enabled people to hold a shield in a right hand, and, uh, and they didn't have to switch hands to use, you know, because uh. if, you, if you're in some sort, I don't know what kind of military formations the Israelites used, but, you know, presumably they had some. Yeah. And, uh, and whatever their battle strategy was, left-handedness would have been an advantage in that particular battle context. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, left-handedness can be an advantage in certain sports. You know, if you can, if you can bat both ways in baseball, if yeah. you can pitch both ways in baseball, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, in, in martial arts, you know, if you can, if you can lead with your, your lead hand, uh, usually is your weak hand. And if, if, if you're lined up with the other guy and you're leading with the left and he's expecting jab, jab, punch, and he gets punch, 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 Ooh. you know, that, I mean, I could see there's some advantage, yeah. but in terms of spirituality and ethics, morality, Typology, none of that, none of those things. Appreciate your call, Adrian. Thanks for checking in from San Jose. Let's go now to Amy, a first-time caller from Peoria, listening on the Great Covenant Network. Amy, what's on your mind today? Hi, I was just calling back, uh, really on behalf of whoever called or emailed in about soul ties. Yes, uh, you had mentioned that you weren't sure what they were referring to, and I can tell you uh, what they probably were referring to. It wasn't oh, what? what you answered. Oh, let's so hear I just, it. Well, I don't want to speak for them, but I just wanted to, uh, you know, do that. So, okay. uh, basically, it's a belief that, say, for example, you have premarital sex with someone, and then you go to the next person, or you get married. Uh, it's the concept that there's still some kind of residual spiritual connection there that has to be broken or renounced oh. in order for you to be oh. free from that connection. Okay. And that's why I just wanted to clarify that. Okay. I have heard this. I have heard this. I just didn't hear that, that vocabulary applied to it. Never heard the term solta, but I have heard that kind of idea. Um, and uh, it, it, I think, let, let's be clear about something. If a person commits an act of immorality... Um, that can definitely have residual effects in your life, but one doesn't need to resort to esoteric theories of soul tie to explain the residual effect. I don't think you have to go any farther than the process of memory, right? I mean, we all remember our our egregious acts from our past, and they can come back and haunt us in a kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, traumatic memory and this sort of thing, and how you form your imagination and your moral habits. In that sense... Um, our past indiscretions can continue to trouble us, uh, but not because there's some ectoplasm connecting me invisibly to some other person. That, there's no such doctrine in the Catholic Church, and there's no reason to believe that. Um, one does need to uh, distance oneself from such past events, but the proper mode for that is is confession and penance, and that I'm reconciled to God in my will. Not that, That's the spiritual organ, right? That's, how am I ordering my life? How am I choosing rationally to order my life with respect to God and neighbor? And then and how am I rendering that good decision habitual? That's what we call the virtues. And so confession, I receive absolution, and, and penance and spirituality will help, hopefully help me develop new positive habits. And, uh, and over time, 
I may not be able to completely eliminate, but I can begin to extirpate those evil memories by implanting new positive memories, new positive virtues, new positive reflections, thinking about Christ and Mary and the saints in their place, and then, and then contextualizing those past indiscretions in my personal narrative, understanding that, you know, all things happen for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And just like St. Augustine, you know, our wayward youth sometime is the occasion for us eventually turning to God and his grace and changing our way of life, you know. So I think there's other ways to cope with it. But mm-hmm. Again, the idea that there's some sort of, uh, uh, you know, silver thread of ectoplasm connecting us and that something other than faith and repentance and, and, and penance and virtue is, is necessary is a poppycock. Uh, Amy, uh, thank you for your call and appreciate you uh, setting us straight there on what we're, uh, what we're talking about there on uh, soul ties. Very good. It's a call to communion here on EWTN. We're going to go to this question here from Jacob, uh, an email. If a person commits a sin before the age of accountability, at their adulthood and in becoming a Catholic, are they required to confess that sin or are they absolved because of their lack of knowledge of the punishment of that sin? Yes. So if a person commits a sin before they are capable of understanding what they're doing to be a sin, uh-huh. it isn't a sin. Ah. Uh-huh. Okay. Right. I mean, so I mean, I I, I have children and grandchildren, and I, I know what you know two two year olds are like, and they're they're <laughs> little petty tyrants. You know, they're they're ridiculous, they're absurd, and they they're utterly selfish and have no regard for anybody else, and all they want are their needs met. That's how they're supposed to be. That's precisely how they're supposed to be. The same behavior in an adult would be execrable that in a two-year-old is, you know, it's time for them to start getting out of that a bit. But that's like that, you know, that's okay for them to be that way. They have no rationality, no faculties. They can't make moral choices. They're not morally culpable. So in their case, it's not a sin. Well, there you go. Appreciate that, and uh, thank you so much for your email, Jacob. Call to communion here on EWTN. Here's one now from Brian. He says, my ex-wife and I are divorced. We have one daughter who is 10. I am pursuing the Catholic Church with RCIA on my own. Now, as I move forward in RCIA, what role does she have, apparently the ex-wife, if any? Uh, she hasn't expressed any interest other than asking the occasional question. Right now, I cannot foresee her wanting to join with me. So perhaps it's the daughter. I think it's the talking. daughter he's okay. talking about. Yeah, Very good. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, obviously, your becoming Catholic happens irrespective of your daughter's position. Sure. Right? I mean, so you become Catholic to become Catholic and to practice the faith. And if your daughter comes to faith, she comes to faith. Now, you can have it be an influence in her life, and hopefully you will be. Maybe she'll come to Mass with you. Maybe you can explain the teaching of the Church to her. Maybe she'll see a difference in the way you live your life. Mm-hmm. Maybe you'll become a better human being, and she'll be attracted to that and make her own decision to come to faith. Uh, but, you know, you can't compel another person to believe what exceeds the bounds of reason. Yeah. The things about the Catholic faith that I can't prove to be true— um, I accept them on authority and for various other reasons. Um, and, but, uh, you know, those other reasons have to be compelling to an individual, and, and th- that's going to come out in the way you live your life. It's not something you can force on her. There you go. And, uh, Brian, we hope that's helpful for you and for your daughter as well. Call to communion here on EWTN. Hey, if you're coming to Birmingham for EWTN's free family celebration, which is on Saturday, August 26th, hey, you may want to stay a little bit longer. There's a lot to see and do here in Birmingham, including our amazing Botanical Gardens. You've been to the Botanical Gardens, right? Uh, Many times. It is just gorgeous. Uh, The Barber Vintage Motorsports Museum. Uh, They tell me it is the largest motorcycle museum 
in the world. My wife could care less about motorcycles. We couldn't drag her out of there. She loved it. Uh, also, we have a number of craft breweries. We have the Birmingham Zoo, which is world class. We've got sporting events, so much more. Go to EWTN.com slash family celebration to find out more and to register. Again, make those plans as we're uh, wrapping up on summer here. Saturday, August 26th is the date. But again, you may want to stay a little longer while you're here in Birmingham. Go to EWTN.com slash family celebration. Find out all about it, and you can register while you are there. Call to communion here on EWTN. We have an email here from Keith. We attended Mass this morning in the Canary Isles and discovered the available hosts ran out. We didn't receive a host along with perhaps another dozen or so people. So what is the effect of this? Are we still in communion with the church? And what should the priest have done? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So uh, first of all, it is absolutely not obligatory, not obligatory for Catholics to commune every time they go to Mass. Okay. And for about a thousand years in the Latin West, the laity communed only once a year. And that was by way of a kind of minimum, because prior to that there were some who weren't ever communing. And so the church at the Fourth Lateran Council, 1215, said, hey, you know, you got to commune at least once a year. That should tell you how different that perspective was from the position today, which is that, well, the only reason I go to Mass is to go to communion. Like, that doesn't make any sense at all in terms of the scope of Catholic history. Yeah. You go, to, you go to Mass to offer the Holy Sacrifice, and you do that by an act of intention, an act of will, not, not uniquely through your act of Holy Communion. And, uh, and, you know, Catholics, many times, like there are all kinds of reasons why you would abstain from Communion. So let's say you didn't keep the Church's fast, for example. Well, you go to Mass, you don't go to Communion. Maybe you are suspicious, maybe I'm in the state of mortal sin, haven't been to Confession. You don't go to Communion. Uh, there be other other reasons why you might abstain from communion. Doesn't in any way invalidate your mass. Does not make the mass less efficacious for the salvation of your soul. Certainly doesn't mean anything about your being in or out of communion with the church. Uh, just that's just a that is a that is a, just a misunderstanding of the nature of mass and the nature of your communion with the church. So absolutely, do not trouble yourself about that anymore. In terms of what is the proper procedure. Um, canonically, when a priest runs out of hosts, to be honest with you, I don't know if there is a standard procedure on what you do. I mean, uh, you know, you don't you don't just you know whip back to the sacristy and do a quick consecration. I'll tell you that for <laughs> sure. You don't do that. Yeah. All right. I, I don't know what other provisions you have for that. I've seen a priest uh, when he sees that uh, provisions are running a little bit low, very carefully. Breaking yeah, the host yeah, in there's half. that. That's that. You can you can double the amount of communions by having all the hosts. That's sure, true. Yeah. Sure. Keith, thanks so much uh, for your email. Anne in Massachusetts called in. Uh, this is kind of a tough one here. She says, "What caused the churches to be so packed back in the day? And why don't we go back to that? What is wrong with the church today?" Okay, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, at one level, I'm reminded of a quote from my favorite science fiction writer, Orson Scott Card. Who wrote a, a you know a stand-up bestseller novel one time called Ender's Game and many other novels to boot, all of which I enjoy. And he was asked in a in an interview once, uh, Mr. Card, why do you think Ender's Game was so successful? 
And his answer was, if I knew the answer to that, I'd do it again. Yeah. Right. And so uh, there are endless speculations about, you know, what what is the nature of the crisis of the church? And typically, the answers that you will get will reflect the ideological predilections of the one answering. So, you know, the traditionalist will say, well, it's because we abandoned tradition and we need to go back to traditionalism and then our churches will be packed. And, you know, the liberal will say, well, no, it's because we're all dogmatic hardliners and we need to loosen the reins a little bit and bring the church down to where the people really are. And you'll get different answers depending on what people want those answers to be. Okay. But I will say this, that the crisis in the Catholic Church with respect to membership, with respect to people attending, is not unique to Catholicism. This is, a, this is a feature of modernity, of the modern world, and it's something that's afflicting just about all religious traditions. I mean, Catholics maybe a bit more than some, um, but the crisis of belief is something that, that's really afflicting the entire modern world. And I do think we can point to some sociological differences, some things about the modern era that are unique in human history that explain the difficulty of maintaining connection with a religious tradition. In more classical period of, of Catholic history, Catholicism was the only game in town. And where there were other religious options, they weren't, they weren't seriously regarded by people. I mean, they were seen as, uh, you know, really divergent and kind of strange and fringe. Um, and pluralism, like confronting other religious traditions and other modes of thought and ways of being, does have a kind of acidic effect on dogmatic certainty in whatever community you're sitting. And, and modernity has been nothing other than that just the, the exponential rise in pluralistic accounts of the human good and the human condition. The advent of the Internet has, has multiplied that parabolically. And, and there is hard data on exposure to the Internet is negatively correlated with, with church attendance and belief. Okay? Mm-hmm, wow. uh, there's a sociologist by the name of Stroop uh, who wrote a fascinating article a number of years ago that I remember reading that tracked um, the strength of belief in orthodoxy against what he called social embeddedness, meaning the more socially embedded you were in your parish, the more your friends tend to go to church with you the more likely you are to believe what the church teaches. And as people's lives become more fragmented, uh, intellectually, socially, culturally, ideationally, um, either through pluralism, through the Internet, through the, the way uh, demographics and economics have changed the location of the person in society, all of those things are going to have a degrading effect on the single-mindedness of a person's religious devotion. And, you know, Charles Taylor, a Canadian philosopher, wrote a book called The Secular Age, where he, it's a big fat book, about 500 pages, where he really tries to understand how is it that society became secular and what does secularity mean? One of Taylor's points is that there was a, there was a time and a place in Western history where not to believe in God, not to believe in the God of the Bible, was literally unthinkable for most people. Today, by contrast, all of us, I think, are conscious that to believe in the God of the Bible and of the Christian faith is very much a conscious choice. And not only is it a conscious choice, but it's a conscious choice that requires a great deal of effort that we have to steel ourselves against the, not just the possibility, but the the ever-present pounding on the brain of the threat of unbelief. Oh, yeah. And uh, as a sociologist named Tanya Lorman, who's written a lot about that question, about 
how belief in the modern world really takes an, ex an extreme amount of personal effort and the lengths that the believer has to go to to insulate themselves from this problem of unbelief. Unbelief is the big factor. Unbelief is the big factor, I think, that helps explain a lot of the defection from the churches. And, you know, it, it, it's not just... It's not just that society apostatized. I mean, that, that's just—that's that's circular reasoning. That's to explain the problem by giving it a different name. Uh, I really think that the social location of the believer in the modern world vis-a-vis -vis the other cultural and religious and ideological alternatives has a lot to do with it. Now, is that a total explanation? No. You know, and I'm, I'm open to discussions from these other points of view that I mentioned earlier, sure. right? But I, I think that, that it helps explain why it's not just a Catholic problem. And thank you so much for checking in from Massachusetts. It's called to communion here on EWTN. Back to the phones now for Mary Catherine, listening in uh, Pensacola Beach uh, on the EWTN app. Mary Catherine, what's on your mind today? Well, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. I've been listening for years, and I, I don't remember ever hearing Dr. David Anders take a question along this line, but it comes to, and I've been teaching CCD for 25 years, and and sometimes the question comes up, but I had a dear great aunt. Um, I had no grandparents by the time I was five years old, and she was like a grandmother to me, and she was raised a Southern Baptist in Louisiana, and she always would tell me, you, know, you should come be a Baptist. You should, you know, I'd go to, sometimes go and stay at her house, and we would go to church, and the ladies would say, you can come and be a Baptist. I didn't realize they were trying to save me. They thought we were going to hell. They always said, as I got older, my aunt would say, well, the Catholics and the Jews, they go to hell, and they were just so taught it. And so when she died, a week later I had a dream where she visited me, and it was more like a visit from her, like a true visit, like biblical dreams where you have visits from God. And she said something very personal to me and said, you're right, because I kept saying, Aunt Rhoda, we don't go to hell. You're going to heaven, I'm going to heaven. God speaks to every single person, which, whichever they're born to, whatever faith. God speaks to everyone. We're all created by God. We're going to be fine. I'm good. Well, she came to say to me, you're right. I'm here, you'll be here, and you're right, I'll see you again. And it was just a loving visit, very brief. And a week after my husband's son died at the age of 21, um, suddenly in a car wreck, immediately, he died. He visited him a week later, too, and it was very vivid. And there was an odd incident where there was a noise in the house at night, and there was no explanation. It was right after he died. And we have visited places like the Myrtles in Mississippi and the, the residue, and we went to a place that had all this noise and disturbances going on, and when I woke up, the people, the innkeeper, bed and breakfast said, how'd you sleep? I said, I didn't. And what happened was there was all this noise. And they told me after going through a lot of details about what I experienced, the candle flickering as I was reading through the you, night. Uh, Mary Catherine, I hate to jump in here, but we're running out of time. Do you have a question for us? The question is, I understand purgatory and hell and heaven as we go on, but is there such a thing as a residual, because with the residual in that yeah, place... I can I can speak to that. Yeah, I appreciate the question. Thank you so much. So uh, the, the Catholic Church is is largely quiet on such things, uh, with, with, an, with an important exception. Um, we know that souls can go to heaven, hell, or purgatory. Um, there have been private revelations of saints 
in which extraordinary vision, not an ordinary part of the afterlife, but there are situations where some saint, uh, God allows uh, some saint to come and speak to someone on earth for some particular reason. Uh, you know, the apparitions of the Blessed Virgin Mary would be a singular example of that kind of thing, mm-hmm. but, but it's not limited to Mary. I mean, I, I've read uh, purported visions of St. Faustina and others that have, you know, been said to appear to individuals and move them on the path to conversion and salvation. So there's definitely a tradition in the church, sort of small-t tradition, of allowing for the possibility of such things. And, uh, and you know, it's the, the more things in heaven and on earth that are dreamed of in Horatio's philosophy, right? So <laughs> I'm not going to try to tie the hands of God and say he's not capable of doing this kind of thing. Now, when you get into talking about sort of residual spiritual influences where personalities get imprinted on a physical location— and there's a fancy, there's another word we typically use for that sort of thing. We call them hauntings, right? Um, that often goes hand in hand with uh, with necromancy, divination, channeling, and other forms of uh, of, uh, of superstition. And of those kind of behaviors, the church is very clear that we are not to perform them. And so, whether or not my deceased grandfather can come talk to me, uh, the church is adamant that I not go looking for him. Right, okay. and right. I not try. I don't try to. I don't try to force the hand of God or to manipulate unseen powers to satisfy my my curiosity, and so I'm uh, I'm I'm left with a bit of a queasy feeling, if you will, about um, you know the uh, sort of like a, a touristy view of the afterlife, where mm-hmm. I seek out places where souls are said to reside. That that kind of attitude. Uh, smacks much too much in my view of of, uh, of divination and channeling and spiritists and necromancy that sort of business of which we the Catholics should have absolutely no truck with any of that. Okay, Mary Catherine, thank you so much uh, for your call from Pensacola Beach. Uh, sorry to jump in on you there, but as you can hear in just a moment here, you're going to hear the music, which means we are out of time. Thank you so much uh, for you, Dr. David Anders. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for you. We do this program Monday through Friday on EWTN Radio. You can hear it at 2 p.m. Eastern for our live broadcast, Monday through Friday, with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. You can check out the podcast anytime you wish. Charles will have that posted for you in the next hour or so at EWTNradio.net. EWTNradio.net. You can hear today's show, yesterday's show, anything that you want going all the way back. And I hope that is helpful for you. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a great day and God bless.